And so I went down, I had an interview with President Bush. He asked me, uh, Ben, do you have any political experience? And I said, uh, Mr. President, I have been elected twice to the Montgomery Township, New Jersey School uh, Board of Education. <laughs> and he said, well, that's, that's good enough for me. I would say that the last two experiences, the financial panic and the COVID recession, I think what we can see is that we've learned a lot, but not maybe necessarily about completely preventing these kinds of events, but we have learned a lot relative to the 1930s about how to respond to them. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Ben Bernanke. Ben is a distinguished fellow in residence with the Economic Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. From February 2006 through January of 2014, he was chairman of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, having been appointed to that position by both Presidents Bush and Obama. Before his appointment as chairman, Ben was chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors and has previously served as a professor and chair of the Economics Department at Princeton University. He's the author of many articles in multiple textbooks and books, including his New York Times bestselling book, The Courage to Act, a memoir of a crisis and its aftermath. Ben, welcome to the podcast. I was very fortunate, as was the nation, that you were chairman of the Fed during the darkest days of the 2008 financial crisis. You were a great partner then, and I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. Now, let's start with the beginning. Talk a bit about your upbringing in South Carolina. How did you get interested in economics? What role did your parents play? Any early uh, mentors that made a big difference? Sure, Hank, thanks for inviting me to be on. I was born in Augusta, Georgia, but I was raised in a small town in South Carolina called Dillon. Some people might know the south of the border, which is a, uh, a tourist trap on I-95, uh, just a couple of miles away from there. It's a small place and uh, mostly agricultural when I lived there, a few textiles. My dad, Phil, was the town pharmacist along with his brother. There was only one doctor in town, so Dr. Phil, they called him, and Dr. Mort, his brother, gave a lot of uh, free medical advice across the uh, counter in the drugstore. I had a lot of jobs. I worked in the drugstore. When I got a little bit older, I did some construction work, helped build the local hospital. And then I spent some summers working at South of the Border as a waiter. So I learned something about hard work and about how difficult it can be for people to put food on the table for their families. Educationally, I, uh, I went to public school in Dillon and I thought I'd go to college somewhere locally. That was the plan. But we had a family friend named Ken Manning Ken was uh, very unusual. He, he was an African-American, but in those days of segregation, but nevertheless, he was able to get into Harvard and where he became a well-known scholar eventually, a professor at MIT, a few years older than me, but he knew me through the store and he thought that I ought to go off to uh, a good school like Harvard. And uh, he persuaded my parents to let me apply, which I did, and I got in. So I ended up uh, going to Cambridge, which was a radical shift from Dillon, I have to say. And that was my chance to really spread my wings and see what was out there in terms of careers and intellectual pursuits. 
I hadn't really been that interested in economics from the beginning. I remember one story when I was quite small, six or seven years old, I was spending the summer in Charlotte with my grandmother. And she told me how she grew up in Massachusetts during the uh, depression. And that because of the depression, the local shoe factory had shut down and people had lost their incomes. And because people had lost their incomes, the children were going to school with shoes with holes in them or even barefoot. And I was six years old, but I could see something wrong with that. I said, oh, wait a minute, why don't they just open up the factory and make shoes for the kids? My grandmother said, doesn't work that way. And I got interested in the depression because it just seemed such a puzzle to me that you had a, an economy that could produce so much and yet there was so much want at the same time. But anyway, I went to Harvard. I was really interested in lots of stuff. I majored for a while in, in math and physics, and then I thought about history and other fields. And then as a sophomore, I took uh, Econ 10, the introductory course, big course, with the professor was Martin Feldstein, who became well-known and was a well-known economist, uh, died recently. And I got really interested in economic development, actually, at the time. It was a fascinating subject. I thought, here's economics. Here's something that combines quantitative stuff, it combines history, combines psychology, put it all together and you can do something to help people. And I just got really interested in, uh, I, I got a job working for a professor named Dale Jorgensen, still on the faculty at Harvard now, these many years later. And the rest is history, as they say, I went on to MIT to get a graduate degree and became a professional economist from there. And interesting because, you know, I had always wondered why you'd focused on the Great Depression. So that was one of your areas of study. You know, the seed took hold when you were six. <laughs> well, I, I got more interested in it when I went to graduate school. My mentor there was Stan Fisher, who was uh, a professor who mentored many people who became central bank governors, uh, including Mario Draghi, who led the European Central Bank. Stan himself went on to be the governor of the Bank of Israel and then became the vice chairman of the Federal Reserve. So he clearly had a lot of uh, practical as well as intellectual chops there. But he, when I first met with him, he told me I needed to think about uh, the Depression. He gave me a very famous book by Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz, which talked about the Depression and the causes of it. And uh, I was fascinated. And then after that, I was pretty much converted to working on monetary issues and macroeconomic issues after that. And so that may get into the answer to my next question, because, you know, you went on to become a renowned scholar at Princeton doing some groundbreaking research. But then you... You know, you made the jump from academia to public service and the White House. And there are not a lot of economists that do that. What motivated you to do that? Was it some of the issues you discussed with Stan? Well, yeah, what motivated me was a phone call. I got a call from Glenn Hubbard, who also was an economics professor, a friend of mine, but he was serving at the time as the chair of President Bush. This is the second President Bush's Council of Economic Advisors, and they needed to fill a spot on the Federal Reserve Board. The Federal Reserve is led by a chair and six other governors, and they wanted to make me one of the other governors. At the time, the chair was Alan Greenspan. So I got a call from Glenn Hubbard saying, would you be interested in doing this? And I said to myself, well, I've been a professor all these years. I've been studying monetary policy, studying macroeconomics. Maybe uh, you know, economics is, uh, is a practical subject. Maybe I ought to go see if I can make good use of what I've learned in the public context. And quite frankly, this was in early 2002. It was only a few months after 9-11. And I said to myself, you know, this is a time when public service is really important. And so I went down. I had an interview with President Bush. He asked me, uh, Ben, do you have any political experience? And I said, uh, Mr. President, 
I have been elected twice to the Montgomery Township, New Jersey School uh, Board of Education. <laughs> and he said, well, that's that's good enough for me. And uh, he appointed me to the board and I, I served as a governor under uh, Chairman Greenspan, watched him at work. I later worked for a while in the White House as the CEA Council of Economic Advisor Chair for President Bush. And then when Greenspan retired in 2006, he appointed me to be the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, which I did for eight years. So it was quite, a, it was quite an adjustment for sure, going from being a, a professor to running one of the most important central banks in the world. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that adjustment, but before getting there, just briefly explain what the Council of Economic Advisors is and what the Federal Reserve Bank is. Sure. Well, the Council of Economic Advisors is inside the White House. It's in the West Wing. There's a chair and there's two other members. And these three people plus a staff are basically the in-house economic consulting group for the president. And as chair of the CEA, on a weekly basis, I would go to the Oval Office and talk to President Bush and talk to him about the recent economic developments and discuss economic policies. It was basically just providing economic advice to the president, didn't have really a policy role in the sense that I didn't make policy decisions, but I was there to help the president make decisions and to advise him on what kinds of policies to try to push through Congress, et cetera. So we were involved in many different things. It's, it's actually a very wide ranging activity because I was there during the Katrina hurricane, which hit New Orleans and the CEA was engaged in very down to earth kinds of issues like trying to figure out how to get fuel trucks to New Orleans. Then the Federal Reserve, um, every country basically has a central bank which controls uh, the money supply of the country, runs monetary policy, which in practice means setting uh, interest rates. So when the economy is slow, the Federal Reserve or the central bank of the country will tend to cut interest rates to a lower level, try to create uh, incentives for people to buy houses, buy cars, spend money and try and get the economy going again. The economy gets too hot, Inflation starts to pick up, then the Federal Reserve raises interest rates and tries to cool the economy. So it's really a very important job to try to help keep the economy on an even keel. And besides that, the Federal Reserve has a lot of responsibilities for trying to keep the financial system efficient and stable, doing a lot of regulation of banks and other financial institutions. And Hank, as you know well, during the great financial crisis of 2007-2009, the Federal Reserve where I was at that time chair and the treasury department where you were the secretary, we worked very closely together trying to stop the financial panic that was uh, developing and limit the damage that it did to the American economy. Yep, and you know, it's interesting because your experience in government went from you know, the executive branch where you were playing the advisory role to the president on economic policy to chairman of the Fed where there's great independence which is one of the things that uh, I think has made the Fed as successful as it, as it has been over the years and, and so respected. Now, I want to talk about one other question here, which was, from my vantage point, you made this transition from academia to these very important government jobs rather seamlessly. But what were the biggest challenges and the biggest differences? Well, the easiest part for me was that the Federal Reserve has many, many professional economists in it. And a lot of the work that we did was uh, technical economics. And so having been a professor and you know, having been the chair of the economics department at Princeton, so I knew how to work with other economists. You know, I was, uh, I think, pretty well equipped to think about the economic issues, to think about 
how the economy was evolving, what the Fed should be doing about it. But there were other parts of the job that were essentially new to me. One was certainly politics. I had to, I testified before Congress in my eight years as Fed chair, I testified something like 80 times. And that is very challenging, as, as you know quite well, because they can be very tough and, of course, very political. I want to emphasize something that you said, Hank, which is that the Federal Reserve is not bipartisan, it is nonpartisan. We make all our decisions without political consideration, do our very best to do what's right for the economy as a whole, not trying to advance the political agendas of one party or the other. But of course, when you go to Congress and you deal with members of the legislature, you deal with people in administration, of course, they have their political agendas and they want you to support them if possible. So the politics was clearly uh, challenging for a fellow who had only been uh, on the school board and had not uh, done a lot besides that. The other part, I think, which is also incredibly important for the Federal Reserve Chair and other people in central banks is the communication. Because the markets are hanging on every word you say, and you're sitting at the table in front of the Congress, and they're asking you questions about this or that, and your staff person behind you slips you a note which says Dow down 300 points, and you say, what the heck did I just say? You got to learn how to talk in a way that conveys confidence and that helps the markets and the public understand what the Fed is doing, but it's all very delicate, and communication, as, as again, as you know, Hank, that confidence is important and communication is the key to confidence. And so that was something, again, that I had to learn on the fly, how to speak in a way that creates confidence and avoids confusion. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But that politics and communication, I think, were the toughest challenges for an economics professor come to Washington. And from my vantage point, there are a lot of things that made you successful, you know, your courage and your intellect. But you are a terrific communicator, and we really benefited from that. You know, you're able to take complex subjects and explain them in simple terms. You know, when you talk about uh, testifying before Congress, I remember someone saying something to me early on, well before we got to the crisis. Aren't you afraid you're going to be in front of a committee and they're going to ask you a question where you don't know the answer? And I remember saying no. Because if I don't know the answer, I won't answer it. But I'm afraid they're going to ask me a question where I know the answer. I'm going to blur it out. <laughs> and, that's exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, or whatever. And so that's a problem. So now I want to go to talking about, you know, the COVID-19 economic crisis. You're, you know, a top, I would say the top expert on the Great Depression. And as we've discussed, you became a terrific practitioner as the Fed played a crucial role at both breaking the back of the 2008 financial panic and underpinning the economic recovery in its aftermath. So you got not just to study the Great Depression, you got to live through the 2008 financial panic and the aftermath. So I want to know how you compare the Great Depression, the 2008 financial panic, and today's COVID-19 crisis, what's the same, what's different? Well, what all three episodes had in common was that they were very, very deep downturns and a lot of jobs were lost, a lot of people faced hardship and uh, they required a strong policy response. So that's what they had in common. The differences were both in terms of what caused the problem and secondly, what the response was to the problem. 
The Great Depression and the Great Recession of 2008 had in common that the shock that hit the economy was internal to the economy. It was basically from the financial system. The Great Depression was uh, the result of a breakdown of the international gold standard and breakdowns in terms of the banking system, which in turn led the economy to go into a deep, deep and protracted recession. There were similarities in 2008, in particular when, as, as again, as you well know, when the financial panic that hit the system, which caused uh, the collapse or near collapse of large firms, which caused uh, the market participants to panic and to become very, very conservative to block the flow of credit. That was a qualitatively similar shock that led to the 2008 recession. The COVID shock, of course, was a very, very different kind of source. It was essentially, a, I guess you could think of it almost as a natural disaster. It was something outside the economy itself. It came from the virus, which led people either voluntarily or because of government orders to stay home, to stop shopping, to stop going to school, to stop working. And that led to the very sharp decline in activity uh, earlier in 2020. So it was a very different source, you know, a very different reason for the decline. The policy responses also differed. I, I think the 2008 response that you and I were involved in benefited tremendously from having seen what happened in the 30s. In the 1930s, the response was very weak. Uh, Fed did not do enough. They didn't do enough to stop the financial crisis. They didn't do enough on monetary policy to keep prices from falling. There was a 30% decline in prices in the 1930s. And think about being a farmer seeing their crop prices declining by 30% or more, and yet still having to pay the mortgage every month. So you could see the financial stress that was created by that. In 2008, we had learned from that, and we responded basically in two ways. One was to try to stop the financial collapse, which was not done in the 30s, but we worked hard and with Congress and with the administration, with the TARP and other interventions to try to keep the financial system from exploding and to get things back to a more normal state where people could get loans and the economy could operate more normally. So that was very important. And the Fed, in contrast to the depression, the Fed uh, in 2008 was very aggressive on monetary policy. We cut interest rates all the way to zero. And after that, we did other things like quantitative easing, which means buying government securities on the open market to try and push down longer term interest rates. And so we were much more aggressive when I say we, I mean, again, the Treasury, the Fed, Congress, in getting the economy back on track. And as a result, while the recession of 2008 was a deep one, it was not nearly as protracted as the Great Depression, which lasted 12 years. In the pandemic crisis, again, a different source. Biggest response, therefore, was uh, on the health side. You know, we now have a vaccine coming, which is great news. The financial system was actually in good shape coming into the pandemic, which was also very helpful. But what Jay Powell and the Fed did in response, and also what Congress did for the pandemic crisis, was, was very analogous in many ways to what we did in 2008. On the one hand, the Fed worked really hard to try to stabilize the financial markets. They did special lending programs. They said they stood ready to be a backstop to critical markets, like the markets for corporate bonds, municipal bonds and bank loans, and they kept monetary policy very easy to cut interest rates once again close to zero. Meanwhile, the Congress uh, administration, as in 2009, did a big fiscal package, uh, a big uh, combination of tax cuts and spending in uh, March of this year, 
which provided a lot of help to small businesses, it provided help to families, strengthened unemployment insurance, et cetera. So again, I would say that the last two experiences, the financial panic and the COVID recession, I think what we can see is that we've learned a lot, but not maybe necessarily about completely preventing these kinds of events, but we have learned a lot relative to the 1930s about how to respond to them. And both the Federal Reserve and the fiscal policymakers had a role and both were very proactive, which I think is the reason that in particular this COVID recession, as the health situation improves, we're gonna see continued improvement in the economy. In 2008, since a problem started in the banks, and it didn't hit Main Street right away. Congress was very reluctant to give us the authorities we needed. And so we had to look, get right to the abyss and they had to see it begin to move to the real economy before they would act, right? Absolutely. And yeah. so in COVID, no one could blame the banks. It was a natural disaster that shut the economy down and it moved immediately to Main Street. And so Congress was able to take some of the things they learned in the 2008 crisis and move quickly. And that's yeah. it. That's one difference. Now, what do you see looking ahead as the biggest priority for economic policymakers in the Biden administration? Well, there's some short-term goals. I mean, I think we're still suffering from this pandemic recession. We're still about 10 million jobs below where we were before it hit last March. So we do need to help people get through this period, even though we hope that by the second half of 2021 with vaccinations that we'll be seeing a, a full recovery or at least the economy making substantial progress. So I would say that a COVID relief package should be a really high priority in the near term, one that includes extended uh, unemployment insurance, help for states and localities, some help for small businesses and the like. And so that needs to be done or again, to help us get through this period. Over the longer term, as the Biden administration and my ex-colleague Janet Yellen now, who was nominated for the Treasury Department, looks at their priorities, clearly they're going to want to look at health care. They want to strengthen the health insurance system, you know, make Obamacare more effective. They're going to want to do infrastructure, including uh, infrastructure to improve climate, so things to save energy or to reduce carbon emissions. Financial regulation, something you and I think about, Hank, you know, part of the problem in 2008 was that there were many gaps in financial regulation that did not prevent the kind of risk-taking and problems that led to the crisis. The Dodd-Frank Act, which was in 2010, which followed the crisis, uh, closed some of those loopholes, but there's more work to be done. And I know Janet Yellen will be very interested in pursuing uh, strengthening of financial regulation. There's a lot of concern about inequality. Can we help people get opportunities that they deserve? All recessions make inequality worse because they hit people at the lowest end of the income and skills distribution most severely. But this one is particularly bad because so many people who work in the service industries, work in restaurants and, and the like, uh, have lost their jobs. And so that's going to be a really important priority. And, and let me just mention one more. I know that's when everything's a priority, nothing's a priority, I know. But there are so many things to work on. But one I would like to mention, because I know it, it's interesting and important for you, uh, Hank, is, is China. Relations with China have been deteriorating, I would say, over the last few years. And obviously, to have a peaceful and prosperous world, the U.S. and China have to work together. I remember very well when I was chair and you were secretary of the Treasury that you started a regular dialogue with the Chinese. And that was, I think, very helpful in, in letting both sides at high levels 
understand what the concerns were of the other country. And I hope that that dialogue will continue and become you know, more engaging, as you've talked about a lot, because that really is in some ways one of the most important issues of the whole 21st century. You and me both. And, you know, the competition with China is to a large extent an economic competition. And our economic strength really underpins, you know, military, diplomatic, foreign policy strength. And so getting that right is very important. Now, I want to move back to the Fed again, because and talk a bit about Jay Powell and the tools he's had. Jay Powell is the chairman of the Fed, of course. You had the courage, and it, it took courage to withstand withering criticism for the unconventional monetary policies that worked so well in, in the aftermath, in, in 2008 and the aftermath. And so are the unconventional tools that you use to good effect after the financial panic in 2008, are they exhausted? And what other tools remain in the toolbox? Well, just to uh, go back to the beginning, the first thing that the Fed does when it wants to help an economy in recession is to cut its short-term interest rate. So there's an interest rate called the federal funds rate, which is basically a very short-term overnight interest rate that the Fed can pretty much directly control. And the first thing it does when it wants to ease policy and help the economy is cut that rate. But when that rate goes all the way to zero, unless you're going to go to negative rates, which the Fed has not expressed interest in doing, then you need to find something else. And, and we at the Fed in 2008, 9 and beyond, we used two other tools. One, as I mentioned before, called quantitative easing, which is buying basically long-term treasury securities, as well as mortgages to try and get those interest rates down than to stimulate economic activity. The other thing we did was we gave what's called forward guidance. We basically told the markets, look, we're going to keep rates low for a long time until we see substantial improvement. And by doing that, you know, the markets say, well, the rates could be low for a really long time. We're going to, you know, bid up asset prices. We're going to bid down long-term interest rates. We're going to change financial conditions so they help the economy. So those two tools, guidance about future policy and quantitative easing, were the main ones that we used once we hit zero with a short-term rate. And they were, I think, pretty effective. They weren't you know, a complete solution or a panacea, but they did add considerably to the power you know, that we had once rates got to zero. Now, I think we learned a lot about how to use those tools. I think what we saw with Jay Powell, you know, he didn't, wasn't at all hesitant. When the economy got hit by the pandemic in March, he deployed everything pretty much in one fell swoop. I mean, he did all the stuff we did. He uh, did all the programs we did. He did the quantitative easing. He did the guidance about rates pretty much right away. And we've learned that being aggressive and proactive with those tools makes them more, more effective. And, and as people have gotten more used to them, frankly, uh, like as you said, when we did it in 2008, 2009, we got a lot of blowback. Jay Powell and his Fed today has gotten very little blowback. In fact, people have been encouraging him to use those tools. Now, there are some other things that, that can be done, and, and the Fed has shown you know, what's possible. Some central banks, beyond those two tools of quantitative easing and forward guidance, do special lending programs. The European Central Bank, which is the central bank in Europe that controls the euro, has special programs for lending to firms. And the Fed is doing something like that now with its credit facilities, where it's lending to firms, both big and small. So that's a possible tool to be added. Another tool is called a yield curve control, which is basically standing ready to buy securities in order to keep rates low over for different maturities for securities of short-term and long-term maturity. 
So there are some things that can be done to strengthen further, but admittedly, if rates are really, really low and there's not much scope for the Fed to operate, then fiscal policy does become more important. And Jay Powell in the United States and Christine Lagarde, the president of the European Central Bank in Europe and other monetary policymakers have been quite clear that they would like some help from the fiscal authorities who, because they control the purse, they can increase spending or cut taxes, have a much more direct and powerful way to get the economy moving. And that's why you know, the Fed has been very supportive of seeing further fiscal action to address COVID. So Ben, I don't know of anyone who is as comfortable as you talking about economics and baseball. And, you know, you're a longstanding Washington Nationals fan, and you and I both got to see our favorite teams, the Cubs and the Nationals, win the World Series in recent years. And one of the books that I now have in my library, which I've been unaware of as a Cubs fan before, is one that's about three inches thick, which you gave me which is the Bill James Historical Baseball Abstract. So my first question is to you, what is it that you find so appealing about baseball? Well, you mentioned Bill James. Uh, He is one of the inventors of what's called sabermetrics, which is basically the statistical analysis of baseball. And one of the highlights of my time at Fed Chair was when I was able to have lunch with him uh, in the White House dining room and got to hear a few of his ideas and give him a few of my own. So I think economists tend to like baseball because there are a lot of statistics, even when I was a kid and there was no major league baseball team within hundreds of miles of Dillon, South Carolina, I could still follow the box scores and, and see what was happening with my favorite players. So there's certainly that element, but you know, baseball is uh, a little bit of an acquired taste. It's kind of like opera, you know, the more you know about it, the more interesting it is. And I really do enjoy it. I was very excited when the nationals won the world series very improbably in uh, 2019. And I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll see a National League playoff between the Cubs and the Nationals uh, pretty soon. It'd be great. We, we saw when they won, as you said, improbably, there were some tremendous comebacks there. So a question though, are you like me uh, still getting used to today's game, which is taken, I don't know whether it's, I think the athletes have taken it there, but uh, analytics has also taken it to the point that it seems to be more about strikeouts and home runs and shifts, or does that bother you at all? Well, I think the game is, has gotten a little too slow. I think Bob Feller once pitched a complete game in 54 minutes, and you know nowadays it takes three or four hours to get a game done, and I think there are things that could be done to improve that. But on the other hand, the thing about baseball is that it's always evolving. You mentioned shifts. Yeah, that's really a basic strategy, but one that was never used at all until relatively recently, and now most teams, uh, it's just really common to see the third baseman playing somewhere behind the first baseman. And I think that's really a result of the statistical analysis, which has improved the game. And the players, the quality of the players in terms of their you know, speed and strength is really uh, you know, impressive. If you look at uh, old-time players, these were little guys, most of them. So anyway, I think the game's evolving. One of the nice things about it is the way the style of play evolves. And the statistical analysis, some of it gets a little bit over the top but it really has changed the game and will continue to change the game. And I tell you, and it's a really fun game to watch and an acquired taste, as you said. And like you, I started fifth grade and it was then Ernie Banks and the Cups. And I would get up early in the morning if I wasn't awake for the night game 
and there were very few night games in those days, but when they played out in the West Coast and so on, I'd look at the box score the next day. So other than baseball, what are some of your other personal interests? Well, Ann and I are, you know, like many other people, are mostly staying home. Not a lot of chances to go to concerts and plays. We also are both working. I'm working on a book, and Anna started a small school in D.C. about a dozen years ago, which she spends a lot of time on and currently online for this year. So we're both pretty busy, but we try to exercise. I'm a, I'm a jogger. We like to go kayaking once in a while. Do a lot of reading, of course, not just economics, but lots of other things as well. One of the things I got from you and Wendy, Hank, is uh, an appreciation of birds. I'm not a serious bird watcher like you, but we've got some beautiful birds out in the backyard, and we, uh, you know, we try to keep track of what's going on. So there's lots to keep yourself entertained. But again, like everybody else, we're uh, we're sticking pretty close to home now. Yeah, and, and as you kayak, you can where you are near Annapolis, you can see bald eagles flying overhead. Once in a while, you can see some herons, cormorants, and some other yeah. falcons, uh, some other beautiful birds. Yep. So lastly, Ben, you're a patron saint to many young and would-be economists. What advice do you have for someone who's interested in your profession or graduating with an economics degree in today's world? Well, I think the first thing I would say is that you know, people have a very narrow idea of what economics is about. I mean, economists are involved in things like trying to forecast, you know, how many jobs are going to be created next week and that kind of thing. But economics is a really, really broad field. Just to give you a sense, the last three Nobel Prizes went, first of all, to somebody who, to some two people who uh, developed new ways of doing auctions so that the government could auction off the spectrum, you know, to uh, companies in a more efficient way. The year before that, was to a couple, married couple, who did medical style random controlled trials to see what kinds of policies help developing countries grow faster, like India, for example. And the year before that went to a economist who specializes in behavioral economics, who's a psychology, uses a psychology approach to see you know, what makes people make the decisions they make. So it's a very, very broad field. If you're interested at all in how human beings interact in the economy, in the family, in business, in almost any other context, there's something there for you to, to look at. So don't be fooled about thinking that this is just about predicting interest rates, although, of course, that's interesting and important as well. So if you get interested in economics and begin to see the wide range of things that you can do, recognize also that just professionally, there's just so many opportunities. And I wouldn't even try in the couple minutes I have to talk about career paths other than to say that, you know, you can, you can be in business, you can be in academia, you can work in policy, you can be in consulting. I've done a lot of those things myself. Mostly I took an academic approach, which was very rewarding for me, but you don't have to be an academic. You can, you could work for the Federal Reserve or the International Monetary Fund. You could work for a bank or another type of company. So the opportunities are very broad. We're very hopeful. The, you know, I think one of the failures of economics is we have not been able to attract enough women and underrepresented minorities in this field. And economics is trying much harder to do that. And I think that's important. So again, a lot of opportunities are there. I think it was Marshall, a famous economist, who said that economics is the study of people in the ordinary business of life. Anything that involves daily activities, whether again, it's in the family, in a business, in the economy broadly, economics can say something about it. And so I encourage people even if you don't want to become a professional economist, to make sure you get some economics courses or to do some economics reading to make sure that you're familiar with this subject. Yeah. 
Then that's something I emphasize too, because it's amazing how many well-educated, smart people are economically illiterate because they haven't really been exposed to it. You know, one thing you said here, I want to emphasize because I've worked with outstanding people in various professions, you know, in, in government and in industry, finance and so on. And the best ones all share one thing in common. They define their job expansively. And that's basically what you said about economics. You need to define it expansively. And Ben, this has been great today uh, talking with you. And one of the things that I really admire about you is that you're always looking forward. So you're at the top of your game, you're innovating, you're breaking new ground, and uh, please keep doing that because we all benefit from it. So thank you. Thank you, Hank. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.